Welcome to the Next Level Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hitchcock. The Next Level Leadership Podcast exists with you in mind. It exists to raise you to your next level of leadership. We've got a great show in store for you today. We're going to be finishing up the last installment of Leading During Tough Times with our focus on the fourth key, which is, of course, executing or implementing the plan. So stay tuned for this exciting episode. You do not want to miss this. Well, hello, everyone. It is so great to be with you yet again. It's always an honor and a privilege to be able to come alongside of you and discuss all things leadership. As always, I'm joined by my good buddy, Josh Parnell. He's with us today. Josh, it's always a pleasure and an honor to have these discussions with you. Josh, the pleasure is mine, and there you go again, once again, with the emphasis on buddy. I'm I'm still not buying necessarily what you're selling, but you I know think what? That, but I think that's typical. You don't buy a lot of what I sell. I think that might be a little typical. Let's work on your sales processes. Yeah, Can maybe so. Okay. Maybe so. So, it, as always, it, it's always great to be with you guys. And as you can see, a lot of fun and games around here. So, so the last few weeks, we've been talking about leading during tough times. Leading during tough times. And we've talked about various keys that are necessary if you're going to lead effectively during tough times. One of the things we talked about, we talked about the importance of remaining calm, right? It's so important that when we're making a decision... Right, we're, we're leading during tough times, and we're trying to formulate an effective decision. It's so important that we stay above the emotions of the fray that's going on around us. It's during that season where it's very easy to get caught up in the emotions of the moment and make irrational decisions. So it's so important that we remain calm when we're leading during tough times. Another thing we talked about this past week, and I encourage you, if you haven't, to go listen to that, is making an effective decision. It's so important that as leaders, when we're leading during tough times and those we lead are looking to us for an effective decision, that we do just that, that we produce an effective decision and that we arrive at it and that we don't get stuck in analysis paralysis, right? That we're able to rise above that, weigh our options, get feedback when necessary and consult those we need to consult and then make an effective decision. And then this week in our last installment of this series, we're going to be talking about implementing or executing, however you want to word it, the plan. So it's important that once we've followed the previous steps we've talked about, that when we arrive to our decision and we're ready to go, it then is paramount that we're ready to implement or execute the plan. So today, we're going to be talking about three keys to implementing the plan. So maybe you're in a season right now where you're leading in a difficult situation. Maybe you're facing a challenge and you've come up with a potential solution. So now you're trying to figure out how do I exactly roll this plan out? How do I implement this plan where I'm at in the here and now? Well, today we're going to be talking about just that. So on that note, Josh, are you ready? Let's get it. I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So point number one in executing or implementing the plan is number one, cast the vision. So when you arrive to a decision, you're ready to implement the plan, you've got to first cast that vision to your team. For those you're leading, it is paramount that we cast an effective vision before we attempt to implement the plan. You know, it's very easy when you've arrived at a decision and you're ready to implement the plan. It's very easy that we want to implement the plan and then cast the vision. But for those we're leading, in order to lead them effectively, we have to cast the vision before we implement the plan. Josh, how critical is it that we're including the team in the vision casting? 
Oh, I, I think it's very critical because if everything rises and falls on you individually, that then becomes your leadership lid for the entire organization or the entire team, which is a scary thing. I mean, I know for me, like if I'm talking about myself personally, like if I had a team and then all of a sudden I make a decision that's entirely on me, I don't consult the team, I don't get buy-in from the team, I just come up with a plan and say, hey, this is how we're going to do it without ever getting feedback without ever getting their input or anything like that, not getting their buy-in, right? I'm going to talk about the law of the buy-in, but without getting any of that from them, it, that's a scary thing because the, the whole the leadership lid then falls on me because then the skill set, the abilities, and everything relative to leadership, relative to leading the team, relative to leading the organization falls on one singular person, which is scary because we're always better together. Sure. It's, a, it's an unnecessary weight to carry as well. And when we can get the team involved, that's really an unstoppable momentum. Absolutely, because then you're creating synergy. You're creating unspoken, like you said, momentum, because then all of a sudden you're collectively pursuing a, a goal together, right? You're collectively going against something. You're collectively providing a solution. You're collectively implementing it. And then all of a sudden, yes, you might be the person that's in the seat of leadership in terms of casting the vision and so forth. But then all of a sudden, that whole positional leadership quandary, maybe we'll even do a podcast on that about how to lead when you're not in position. You know, that then goes out the window. Because everybody you're leading under your team, no matter what position or what seat they find themselves in, in your team, it doesn't matter. Because now all of a sudden, they're just as bought into the vision that you've casted as you are yourself. Therefore, you're not having to sell this vision, sell this dream, sell this mission on a regular basis. Exactly. Automatic buy-in. Because they're just as bought in as you are, right? They're just as bought into what you're doing. You know, I've got a, a friend of mine that owns a business and he invested in one of his employees in personal development. He got buy-in from this employee and really just invested in him. And I thought it was fascinating. Here recently, my friend got another business opportunity within the company that he's in. And he communicated that to this team member and said, hey, you know, I've got a new opportunity. It's going to be X amount of hours away from here. And it's just really exciting. Well, the team member he was communicating this to didn't realize that my friend was just saying he had another opportunity. Didn't mean he was leaving his current one. Just said, hey, I've got an additional opportunity alongside this one. And all of a sudden, it was the funniest thing. The team member got mad and got agitated and said, well, you know, I just can't believe this. I'm going to have to go home and talk to my wife. I just can't believe you would do this to me. And just started going on and on. And my friend looked at his team member and said, well, hold on, hold on. What's the problem? Why are you getting so upset? And he said, well, obviously, if you have another opportunity that's better for you, you're going to move. You're going to go to that location. And I'm coming with you. There's no question I'm coming with you. It's just now a matter of convincing my wife that we're going to have to sell our house and logistically do this. And of course, my friend was able to say, no, 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 I'm not leaving where I'm at. You know, while it's a funny story, the cool thing about that, what was that? My friend had gotten the buy-in of this team member, right? He was bought into the greater vision. And even if that meant moving to another location, even if that meant moving to another geographical area, he was going to do that. So kind of piggybacking on what you said, that when you get your team buy-in on a particular situation or a particular initiative and so forth, there's an, an emotional transaction that takes place because now they're just as married to the vision as you are. Yeah, you might have been the guy that initially cast the vision, that initially presented the idea, that initially dreamed up what's happening, but now they're just as bought into it as you are. So, you know, John Maxwell even talks about this in the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. He talks about the law of the buy-in. 
right? Which basically, in a nutshell, basically saying, hey, when you're casting a vision, you have to get the buy-in from your team. When there's a new initiative, you have to get their buy-in. You have to do it collectively, and you have to do it with respect to the various skill sets and strengths and even weaknesses of your team members. You know, everybody is wired differently, right? Like me, for example, I'll, I'll use, use myself as an example. I love change. I love the idea of something new, something cutting edge, something intuitive that's just one step ahead of everybody else. I love that. I'm thrilled by that. But I respect the fact that there's a lot of people that aren't wired that way, that there's a lot of people that when you bring a new initiative, when you initiate change, when you're casting the vision, I know that there's a lot of people that that stresses them out, right? That that's something they have to process. That's something they have to question. There's something that they have to buy into before they're just going to run with this because that's just how they're wired. So as an effective leader, when you're casting the vision, your goal is to get the buy-in of all your team members when possible, right? I mean, there's going to be times when, when maybe you don't get 100% buy-in, but if you can get 90, 95% buy-in by those around you, like you said, it, it creates ownership in all levels and it makes the vision that much easier. So step number two, so number one is casting the vision. So that's the first step in implementing the plan is casting the vision. Number two Number two, the second step in terms of implementing the plan is this. The second step is identify the appropriate roles within the plan for those we lead. Each individual we're leading has a unique skill set, and as leaders, we want to make sure that we're placing them in the position they are best suited to help implement the plan. We want to make sure we're doing that as leaders. So so it's important that we might have a fantastic team. We look around us and say, oh my goodness, all of these team members are just great and they're bought into the vision. And But I just alluded to the fact that we're all wired a little bit differently. We all have different levels of skill sets, abilities, talents. And we want to make sure that each and every team member that we have the honor of leading is in the seat that best suits them. It's in the seat that is favorable to their strengths, that maximizes their strengths, but minimizes their weaknesses, Right. We want to make sure that we're placing each and every person we lead in situations that are best suited for their personal success, best suited for their professional success, and best suited overall for the team's success. So how do we identify the right roles for the right person? I think first of all, and personally, I think this is where a lot of leaders uh, mess up, is you have to first simply get to know your team, right? You have to first simply get to know them on a personal level, get to know them on a professional level, and just really know who they are, know how they're wired, know what makes them tick. I had a friend of mine recently that said early on in his leadership career, one mistake he made with his team was constantly trying to reproduce himself, right? He is and was a good and effective leader. He has had high-level leadership roles throughout his entire career. And what he would try to do is try with his team to reproduce a version of him. He would say, I'm trying to reproduce a Chuck, And he realized that that wasn't effective, that that wasn't the best way possible. And I think a lot of times as leaders, you know, we all recognize that we have skill sets and abilities and talents. I mean, there's a reason we're leading, right? I mean, there's a reason that we're in the seat or the position we're in. It's because we worked hard. There's skill sets, there's talents there. But it's important when you're trying to determine what seat each team member belongs in, that we're not trying to reproduce ourselves in the middle of all of that, but rather we're looking at that team member unbiasedly and saying, okay, here's their strengths, here's their weaknesses, where do they best fit? 
there's some situations where you're going to see weaknesses that are more malleable or flexible that you say, hey, we can work on some issues like this. We can work on an area like this. This is something we can coach. This is something we can get better in. And then there's others. There's other areas that are more constant, that that's there to stay. There's no way you can coach that or not coach that. That's kind of how that individual is wired. For example, I'm not a huge fan of broccoli, right? not a huge fan of that. You can call me George Bush, right? I'm not a huge fan of broccoli at all. And you can coach me on the benefits of broccoli all day. You can tell me how good broccoli is, how good it is for me, but it's not going to get me to eat the broccoli. No matter how you sell it to me or present it to me, it doesn't matter. It's still, I can tolerate it, but I'm just not a huge fan of it. Only time I can uh, eat it is if it has hot melted cheese on the top of it, then I could possibly eat it. But similarly with our team members, there's certain areas that you can work on and say, I can coach here, I can coach there. But there's other areas where simply it's like, hey, that's who they are. I'm not going to attempt to make them a little version of Josh, a little version of Chuck, a little version of fill in the blank, but rather I'm going to position them in a situation that maximizes their strengths, but minimizes their weakness. It's the same thing even in sports, right? I was watching a documentary the other day on uh, Bill Parcells, and Bill Parcells is my favorite coach of all time. I just love him. I love the New Jersey bravado, New Jersey, New York just kind of shoot from the hip. Here's how it is bravado. But even in his sports teams, you know, multiple successful championships as a coaching tree, unlike any other, plenty of Hall of Fame coaches that he helped develop early on in their career. You know, it was interesting to hear him talk about finding the best seat for each team member. It was very interesting to, to hear him coach to people's strengths, not their weaknesses. And another interesting and fascinating thing about his coaching style was that he went out of his way to make connection with each and every one of his players. I mean, to this day, you know, he was recently inducted in the Hall of Fame a few years ago. Players, coaches, team members, teammates, whatever, they were all in the audience, a lot of them teary-eyed, watching him get inducted to the Hall of Fame. Now, he was a tough coach. You go look at him. I mean, he was he would fly off the handle at the snap of a finger. He would talk to them at times where you're like, oh, my gosh, you can't say that in, in certain environments. But they respected him and loved him for it because – he was able to make that personal connection. Well, and Josh, you alluded to that earlier as well. You know, it's it's there's a lot to be said when someone who is directly influencing you, someone who you are, for lack of better terms, directly reporting to, genuinely shows you that they care. They show you that they love you. They show you that they have your best interest in mind. And if they didn't have difficult conversations with you, if, if they didn't share feedback with you on a regular basis, they'd be doing you a massive disservice, right? And we've heard the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That can be said for this specific situation. Absolutely. You know, I've got a family member of mine who's a uh, campus pastor at a uh, mega church, and he's got a team under him. He has the privilege of pastoring quite a few individuals. One statement he always makes is, is if you can get that buy-in, if you can make that connection, you can tell that person anything as long as you say it the right way, you can tell them anything. Sure. It, it opens the door. That connection opens the door for you to be able to speak into people's lives. I think one thing that John says that, that I absolutely love was leaders always touch a heart before they ask for a hand. They touch a heart before they ask for a hand. And, and that's so key when you're finding the appropriate roles for those that you're leading in, in the bigger scheme of the plan. Yeah, always try to touch their heart before you ask for a hand or try to position them in, in certain ways. Don't try to reproduce yourself like we talked about earlier. Maximize their strengths, minimize their weaknesses. And then I think the bridge between the two is love, right? You alluded to that. I think the way you bridge connection 
to desire change is through love, loving the people you lead, making that genuine connection, showing them that you genuinely care about them as a whole person, and then changes are, are able to be made. And, and Josh, when you do that, when you're coaching and when you're leading and providing direct feedback, they're receiving it as a coaching opportunity. They're receiving it because they know that they have the ability to go from great to greater, and they're not receiving it as criticism or condemnation or a defensive reception. And I think, too, that when you're able to make that emotional connection, for lack of better words, with those you're leading, I think, too, it causes them to second guess if there's another opportunity that arises, right? I mean, I used the example of my friend's team member a little while ago, but I think, you know, nobody's ignorant to the fact that we live in a very competitive job market right now. I mean, people are looking to hire. People will will match typically what you're being paid at a certain entity. A lot of other entities in the same industry will match that, or maybe they'll offer a little more just to get them away or a benefit that they don't currently have at their current place. They're going to offer that over, you know, at at somewhere. And, and, and oftentimes people think with the mindset, um, the grass is greener on the other side. But I think when you make that emotional connection, it causes there to be pause and cadence before a decision like that is made, because then they realize, then they realize that when, when they walk away, they're not just walking away from a company. They're not just walking away from, you know, compensation where they're going to be getting compensated more. They're walking away from a relationship that's been built, from a connection that's been made. And I think that you have to take that into consideration. Is I think those we lead take that into consideration when we're able to make and steward that emotional connection. You know, some of the most difficult decisions I've ever made in terms of walking away from companies and so forth, there was always that emotional factor that went into that, right? Because I thought about who am I walking away from what am I going to lose if I walk away from here, right? Not just in terms of compensation, but in terms of that connection that was made, the rapport that was built, the understanding that, that was had, what exactly am I walking away from and where am I going to? doesn't mean it, that stopped me from making the decision because there's been times where I still made the decision even when I weighed that out, but it did cause me to pause and say, okay, let me think about this. So I feel like we just went down a rabbit hole, but, it, but I think that was a good rabbit hole because again... It is so important to identify the appropriate roles within the plan that you're presenting for those you lead, find their seat on the bus, and make them comfortable at it. And so, what I'm taking away, Josh, from this is the grass is green where we water it. That's Oh, that's that, good. That's, is that accurate? That's, that's really good. The grass is green where you water it. Uh, it's not always the grass is greener on the other side. So on that note... We're going to switch gears to our third key to implementing or executing the plan. So you've cast the effective vision. You've got the appropriate team members in the appropriate spots. So now number three, can I get a drum roll, Josh? All right, number three, just do it. Just do it. Josh, does that phrase sound familiar to you? Uh, I love it. You know, Phil uh, Phil Knight might be giving us a call here. Shortly. Yeah, he, he, he might be, you know, that's the Nike adage, just do it. But I love that because after you've done the previous two steps, it's important to remember that as leaders, when we've done those previous two steps, we've casted the vision, we've identified the appropriate roles within the plan for those we lead. We have to realize that it's not up to us to dictate the conditions that are going to just be just right for this to happen, right? Conditions are rarely just right to execute any plan, but it is paramount that the plan strategies and ideas we have presented 
that they don't go stale because we just refuse to do it because we're waiting for the perfect time, right? Because remember, anything you leave on the shelf longer than their sell-by date always goes stale, right? I like that. You like that? Isn't that that pretty good? When you leave something on the shelf longer than its sell-by date, it goes stale. So any idea, strategy, initiative that we've come up with, any plan that we've gotten buy-in from the team, it's important that we just do it. We don't wait for the perfect condition. We don't wait till things are just right because things will rarely be just right, quote-unquote. I say that with air quotes, but rather... We want to make the case that, you know what, I've done these steps. We're ready to go. Let's just dive in. Let's just do it. All right, Josh, prior to our time expiring, pun intended, how often should we revisit the vision that we casted? You should revisit it fairly often, just depending on what is the scope of it, right? Is this an initiative or a plan that's temporary in nature, right? There's a temporary crisis that has occurred. You're coming up with a temporary or quick solution. Or is this a long-term thing that is going to require a lengthier plan that's there to stay, basically? You know, look at the time frame of that and make the appropriate decision. Obviously, if it's a short initiative that required a rather quick decision, you don't really have to review that. You made the decision. But if it's a longer initiative that's going to require review, I would say as a leader, and part of that is going back to, I think John talks about it as the law of intuition, is just intuitively, I think, leaders know, okay, let me let me check. Like, sure. th- this needs to be evaluated. They just know instinctively, okay, it's time to check. I, I don't think there's any, like, hey, set this calendar reminder or anything like that. Leaders just intuitively know. And I think if you have a, a pulse on the business and if you have a pulse on on what's being what's taking place and what isn't, that's at any time you can, you know, call this informal meeting or, or in, informal discussion and say, hey, let's get together. Let's revisit this. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. We're all, you know, checking each other's pulse and making sure that we're each individually doing our role, playing our part uh, in the mission at hand. Absolutely. And and really, like you talked about earlier, having a pulse on your, your team members, right? Having a pulse on those that you're leading and, and those that you've cast a vision to is also going to help you make the determination, do I need to check on this? Do I need to adjust something? Do I need to fix something that, that we're running into? So I absolutely love that. So on that note, implementing the plan, quick review, and, th- and then we'll wrap it up for today. Casting the vision is the first step, number one. You want to always make sure we're casting the vision of those we're leading, those around us, those we're leading. We want to make sure we're casting the vision of the effective solution. Number two, we want to identify the appropriate roles in the plan for those that we lead. So find the right seat for the right people, maximizing their strengths, minimizing their weaknesses. And then number three, simply just do it. So on that note, I would encourage you to remember the four keys we've talked about and leading during tough times, and even the principles within those keys. And if you do this, I I promise you, you'll be set up for a win in terms of the next time you come across a crisis or a tough time where you yourself have to leave. So on that note, I want to leave you with these encouraging words from Numbers chapter 6. It says this, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. And may the Lord watch over you and give you His peace. Until next time, I'm Josh Hitchcock reminding you to keep leading well.